This is the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks on KQV with expert advice from CPA attorney and retirement and estate planning expert, Jim Lang, the best-selling author of Retire Secure and the Roth Revolution Pay Taxes Once and Never Again. Now on the air and online worldwide at retiresecure.com, get ready to talk smart money. Hello and welcome to the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. I'm your host, Hannah Haytanen Kay, and of course I'm here with Jim Lang, CPA, attorney, and best-selling author of the first and second edition of Retire Secure and The Roth Revolution, Pay Taxes Once and Never Again. One small change for the new year is that the show will start at 7.05 instead of 7 p.m. to allow for KQV to provide the news at the top of every hour. Jim's guest tonight is Larry Swedro. Larry is a best-selling author with 11 books to his credit and was among the first authors to publish a book explaining passive events, investing in layman's terms. He is a principal and co-founder of BAM Advisor Services, LLC, and the director of research and principal for BAM and Buckingham Asset Management, a, billion, a multi-billion dollar firm that works primarily with passively managed index funds. He has appeared on NBC, CNBC, CNN, FN, and Bloomberg Personal Finance. Larry also writes a blog for cbsmoneywatch.com. On tonight's show, Larry will shatter the myths about money you've come to accept and challenge the conventional wisdom you've received from friends, advisors, and other so-called experts. In his latest book, Investment Mistakes Even Smart Investors Make and How to Avoid Them, he details 77 of these mistakes, and we will discuss several of them. Also, he will share the 78th mistake, which, he, which is not included in the book, and what he terms the great anomaly of investing. But before I turn it over to Jim, I want to remind our listeners that the show is live, so please feel free to call in with your questions for Larry. The number is 412-333-9385. Again, that is 412-333-9385. Good evening, Jim, and welcome to the show, Larry. Thanks for having me, Hannah. It's a pleasure to have you, Larry. Your book is so terrific. Uh, you know, we uh, rarely get somebody who writes a, a book that actually has a glowing testimonial from John Bogle, who is the founder of Vanguard. But your book does have that glowing testimonial. And my biggest problem in preparing for tonight is that there were so many areas and so many mistakes that I wanted to cover, and we only have an hour to cover them. But anyway, congratulations on a great book. Well, thank you very much, and I'm happy to come back, uh, and we'll discuss more of them. <laughs> well, I, that, that, that's a, a very likely possibility, because you and I had, had spoken for probably roughly an hour, and my only problem with that conversation was my hand hurt so much from taking such good notes from our call. Um, the first mistake, which I actually thought is terrific and is, I would say, an epidemic, including my many of my clients, and at the risk of being more specific, many of my clients that happen to be engineers. Mm -hmm. Are you... Yeah, oh, doctors, I would say, are even worse. <laughs> doctors are worse? Okay, that's fair enough. <laughs> let's, let's, let's get a couple groups that mad at, mad at us before we even start. Right. And the question is, are you overconfident of your skills? Right. Well, there's a all-too-human trait in any area. Uh, that we are overconfident in our skills. If you ask people, and this has been done in many countries and many areas, are you a better than average driver, for example, 
80 to 90 percent say yes, when obviously not more than half can be above average. It doesn't matter if you ask them if you're a better-than-average driver, a better-than-average lover, or a better-than-average investor. We're simply overconfident in our skills. And thinking you're a better-than-average driver probably is not going to get in trouble. You're smart enough. Your brain will override that overconfidence, and you won't try to drive 90 miles an hour in a driving rainstorm and turn a corner like that. But if you're overconfident of your investment skills, you're likely to make some big mistakes. You don't need to diversify because you know which stocks are going to do well or which countries or which sectors. Uh, You can time the market, which is proven to be very dangerous. You believe that even though the evidence shows it's extremely difficult to identify the few active managers that will outperform, somehow you'll do it. And you can invest in very risky companies because you know they're not really risky. Well, what if what if you're a really smart guy? Like, what if you're like a, a, a Mensa person? You know, you're really bright. So you're not really talking to the average guy here, but you're talking to the guy who, who genuinely is bright. And if he took a an IQ test, he wouldn't do average. He would do well above average. In fact, he might be close to or at genius level. Right. You, well, that's, th- making, yeah, that's making another mistake, Jim, uh, of confusing intelligence with wisdom. I like to say I think I'm fairly intelligent. I graduated number one from one of the top MBA programs in the country, but I'm ignorant about lots of things, nuclear physics. My wife and three daughters tell me women is another subject I'm <laughs> ignorant about. Uh, and You, you and now, Stephen Hawking's. Yeah, he, he, he said women are a complete mystery. <laughs> right. It, it doesn't make me dumb. It makes me ignorant, and ignorant is not a pejorative term. Uh, so what I say to a doctor is I say, I think I'm smart. Would you let me operate on your patients? And they laugh. And I say, well, it's the same thing. Have you taken a single course in capital markets theory? And the answer almost certainly is no, yet they think they can use their intelligence to generate above-market returns. And the great example that you're referring to is one I cite in the book of the Mensa Club. If anybody should be able to prove that you can use intelligence to outperform the market, it's this group of a high IQ society, top 2%. And the Mensa Investment Club, trying to prove that, you know, pooling their intelligence, more heads are even better than one, over 15 years they did something that I believe would be virtually impossible if you set out to do it unless you were simply churning your account, they underperformed the market by almost 13% a year for 15 years. One guy said when he was asked to explain his strategy, he said, it's simple, we buy low. Are you still with us? Yep. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. They buy low and... Oh, 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 that was it. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. I, th- I, th- I th- <laughs> that was it. Um, yeah. yeah in, in fact, that you say that uh, uh, with a starting investment of five thousand three hundred dollars, they turn that into nine thousand three hundred dollars. Where if they had just been in the S and P, they would have three hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. So that shows you how expensive overconfidence can be, and that was over a thirty-five year period. So that sh- that cost that overconfidence cost that gentleman. Two hundred and seventy or two hundred ninety thousand dollars. I mean, that's a pretty expensive lesson. It, it, it sure is. So I I don't know if that I, I still don't. I think for a lot of people that still won't really penetrate. But but hopefully I it's kind of chipping away at sometimes people do well. I have a lot of clients who are overconfident. The other yeah. problem with the the some of the do-it-yourselfers is that they don't get report cards. 
So, yeah, exactly. And uh, what I would tell you, the, the virtual certain sure cure for overconfidence is every time your client makes a forecast uh, or buys a, make them keep a diary and write it down and then look back, that'll cure them of their overconfidence. Yeah, that's, that's one thing that I like about the money managers that I work with um, is that they will tell you, uh, not every month obviously you get a statement, but every quarter they give you a, re- a report card and they say in effect, here's what you started with, here's what you put in, here's what you took out, here's what you have now, here's our fee, here's what you have now. And then they say if you were, and let's say just for discussion's sake, use the S&P as a, as a benchmark, if you had the money in the S&P, you started at the same place, you put the same money in, you took the same money out, but the investment result would be different. Right. There wouldn't be a fee. Here's where you would be. So so you get to track how they're doing, but a lot of do-it-yourselfers, you know, they they sometimes remember the winners and don't remember the losers, and they don't really know how they're doing. Exactly. I've asked this. I do a lot of seminars, probably about 50 a year. And I asked the question, how many people in the audience know their rate of return? And virtually nobody raises their hand. And the evidence from studies shows that not only people don't know their rate of return, but they dramatically overestimate it so bad that something like even uh, 25% of the people who said they made money and outperformed the benchmark actually lost money. So your point is right. They tend to remember their winners and the ego makes them forget they're losers. Yeah. All right. The another mistake that uh, that you write about, and again, the biggest problem with this interview is just only having the time to cover maybe seven or eight instead of seventy that I'd like. <laughs> is do you project recent trends indefinitely into the future? So here's what happens. This is the way I believe the vast majority of investors actually implement their strategy, if you will, although it may not be intentional. Uh, What they do is, uh, the analogy I use is they're driving a car forward, but they're looking in the rearview mirror, and that's a sure way to get into an accident eventually. So what they do is they watch yesterday's winners, then they buy high, then they watch yesterday's losers and panic and sell and sell low. Buying when Prices are high, meaning valuations are high and expected returns are low, and then panic selling when valuations are low and expected returns are high clearly is an irrational strategy, and yet that's exactly what investors do. They do it all the time. Perfect example from 2009 through the end of 2010. The market went on one of the greatest bull market runs in history, rising 100% from the bottom on March 9th the end of the year, and investors were pulling out $350 billion. Instead, they should have been rebalancing their portfolios. So if you were 60% stocks and 40% bonds when the bear market started, now you're maybe 50-50 or 40-60. You simply buy yesterday's losers, which in that case were stocks. They had underperformed. You buy when valuations are low and expected returns are high, not because you're making a forecast, but because you're simply sticking to your plan. And then you watch the winners go up, outperform. You sell when valuations are high and expected returns are low. That surely must be a better strategy, buying low and selling high than the reverse. But we know the evidence from every study done, that investors get it backwards because their stomachs take over. Greed and envy in bull markets, and they get too optimistic. 
and then fear and panic in bear markets, and they panic and sell. Well, well, let me ask you a question, and this might not be directly on point with that particular mistake, but I have a lot of clients, and frankly, both sides on the political fence, who thinks that the U.S. economy and even the world economy is really in a crapper. Right. And they're saying, hey, you know something? Um, you know, with what's going on in Europe and what's going on with the economy and, un and unemployment, I really don't want to be in the market right now. Right. Now, I don't, I, guess, I don't know if that's right on point, but, but what would you say to people like that and people who maybe have been beat up a little bit and they're they're reluctant, and they they change their allocation to be c considerably more conservative than they might have been, say, three or four years ago. Okay. Well, we're getting into lots of mistakes here. Uh, let's <laughs> start with number one: not knowing your financial history. You should, before you ever invest, you should know that we uh, financial markets, equities, stocks in particular, are very risky. We've had three 50% drops just in the last 35 years, 73, 4, 2000 to 2002 and 2008. And we had a 90% drop in the Great Depression. And if you want another recent example, Japanese stocks, hit, uh, the Nikkei index hit 40,000 in 1990. It's now trading at roughly 10,000, down 75% as an index uh, for 22 years. So stocks are risky, and you need to be sure when you build an investment plan that you incorporate the virtual certainty that you're going to have to live through those bear markets. And if you can't take those risks, then you need to have a low equity allocation. So that's rule number one. Those who don't know their history, as Santayana, Spanish philosopher, said, are doomed to repeat it. So that's mistake number one. Mistake uh, uh, number two is there are confusing information with wisdom, or what I call value-relevant information. So the first rule of investing should be is to ask yourself the question, I've got all this bad news or good news about a stock, whatever it might be. It's only a value if nobody else knows it, because if everyone else knows it, that means it's already incorporated into prices. So if you know your clients call you and say, well, we got all this bad news on the U.S. budget deficit, unemployment, Spain's going bankrupt in Greece, and you know all this stuff going on, and we got Iran, nuclear weapons, all you have to do is ask yourself this question. Am I the only one who knows it? Do the guys at Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and Warren Buffett and you know the guys who do most of the trading, the big institutional investors, they clearly know it, and that's why prices are where they are already. In other words, if the news was not as bad as it is, then prices would clearly be higher. So in other words, the bad news is reflected in prices. That usually means valuations are low and expected returns are high. Now why would you want to sell when you bought previously at higher valuations when expected returns were low? Again, buying when expected returns are low and selling when they're high is clearly a foolish strategy, and that's why Warren Buffett warns people, says never try to time the market, and, but if you're going to do so, then you need to do the opposite of what people do. You need to buy when everyone else is panicked, selling, and losing their head. Well, I think that is great wisdom. I hope some of our clients and listeners are actually 
taking notes and actually might even change some of their behavior. Yeah, and Jim, I would add that's going to, if you want to talk about it now or later, that gets us to the mistake 78 that I did not include in the book, but well, I'll leave that to you. All right, well, we'll, we'll maybe do that one for, uh, well, I'll tell you what, let's, let's do it right now because it's related. Right, okay. So uh, the, mis- the 78 mistake, uh, which I have talked about for years but never put a term to it, is when investors hear bad news, they do what I call stage one thinking. And a great example of that is Meredith Whitney, who your listeners may recall, le- uh, December of 2010 uh, uh, made this forecast on 60 Minutes that we'd have hundreds of billions of dollars of municipal bond defaults. Uh, and she gave lots of very good reasons about the state of the municipal finances and the big problems with their pension plans and earning shortfalls because, you know, incomes were down. She made the terrible mistake of stage one thinking. News is bad, and therefore prices have to go down, okay? Same thing is true with Europe's you know, economies and Greek debt, et cetera. As I mentioned, prices already reflect that. But stage two thinking is the kind that Warren Buffett does. He assumes that you have to, or he understands that you have to ask the question, what then? So in Meredith Whitney's case, she never asked the question, what then? By law, under the Constitution, 49 of the 50 states must balance their budget. So what happened? States slashed spending, renegotiated contracts with unions, raised taxes, balanced their budgets. We had one of the best years ever in the municipal bond market, very low defaults and most states have dramatically improved their situations. She would have been right if people did nothing, but that's not what happened. One other great example, March 2009, we have this crisis. The government, or even earlier, we had that crisis in 07 and 08. Governments don't sit there and do nothing. We had stimulus packages, we had tax cuts, and then the Federal Reserve slashed interest rates to zero, and then we had quantitative easing one and quantitative easing two, Similarly, that's what we're seeing in Europe with the European countries now slashing expenditures to try to balance their budgets. You're seeing them also, European Central Bank slashing interest rates, also engaging in activities to help the banks gain liquidity. That's what I call stage two thinking, the ability to see through the clouds and understand that actions are going to be taken. The worse the crisis is, the more likely it is that actions will be taken with urgency and with scale, not a guarantee that it'll work, but history tells us that the vast majority of time it does, and you need to be disciplined and stay the course and not panic and sell, because you're almost certainly going to sell at exactly the wrong time, probably just before the thing turns around. Okay, Larry, um, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to get back into the other 77 um, mistakes. The Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks, featuring the expert advice of Pittsburgh-based CPA attorney Jim Lang. More coming up on KQVAM 1410. The Lang Money Hour continues on KQVAM 1410. For all of your financial needs, turn to Lang Financial Group in Squirrel Hill, 412-521-2732. Let's talk more smart money. Hello there, and welcome back to the Lang Money Hour. This is Hannah Haytanen Kay, and I'm here with Jim Lang and Larry Swedrow, author of Investment Mistakes Even Smart Investors Make and How to Avoid Them. Welcome back, Larry. Uh, and, and, and again, I will just say that I loved your book. I think that there's so much wisdom, 
And I'm even going to take the liberty of quoting John Bogle, founder of Vanguard Group. Using this book as your checklist, you cannot help but improve your share of the financial markets to which you are entitled. Um, uh, so anyway, one of the questions that I had, uh, or I shouldn't say I have because they're your questions, but one of the answers that I'm looking for is, do you let your ego dominate the decision-making process? Yeah, I, I found this to be very interesting. Uh, and there's, there's an all-too-human need, I, I think, to be better than average. And the typical investment bro you know, stockbroker plays on that. They'll tell you if you invest in an index fund, yeah, that's okay, it's a good strategy, but you'll get average returns. You don't want to be average, Jim. We can, you know, you can do better than that, and we can help you. You know, uh, I think when one of the great ironies, Edward Johnson, who is the chairman of Fidelity, now one of the largest providers of, of low-cost index funds, when uh, Vanguard came out with what it was called Bogle's Folly, they were saying it's un-American to index, right? He said, I can't believe that the great mass of investors are going to be satisfied with just receiving average returns. The name of the game is to be the best. Well, what Wall Street doesn't want you to understand is that while index is, is that indexing does not get you average returns, it gets you market returns. So if you invest in an S&P 500 index fund, you get that return. And because indexing outperforms the vast majority of active investors, by definition, you outperform the vast majority of active investors. So you get above average returns compared to the average investor. Getting market returns is a good thing, and it allows you to control your risk and do so in the low-cost way. Well, well, let me ask you a related question. Um, and we have had a couple, um, let's call it women finance experts, and they were talking about the need and the importance of the uh, typically wife who has not necessarily been on top of the fa family finances and particularly the investments. What should a woman do, like maybe some of the wives of these doctors or engineers who are likely to survive their husbands and whose husbands' decisions could have a potentially enormous impact on their lifestyle? And I, I'll, I'll tell you one situation I had in practice where, where a guy, he thought he knew everything and he really didn't. And... He, he liked some, let's call it, unconventional investments. And he basically lost his shirt. And there was a bankruptcy, and it was absolutely miserable. And he had saved a million dollars, so and based on their lifestyle, they should have been fine. But, in fact, they were not. And I think that in the bottom of, of her heart, the whole time, that he really was not on top of this stuff. And I think that if you ask her, would you prefer... Um, a professional take care of this in a in a good way. Yes, you're going to have to pay a fee, but you're not ultimately going to lose your shirt. But that's what happens. So, what would how would you advise women of people who have an ego? So, let's assume that we're not going to change the person who has the the big ego dominating the decision making process. What advice would you have for the spouse? And, well, I, and I, I shouldn't be sexist because you could have the same thing. You know, where the woman is the, is the hot shot and the guy knows that. But let's say, at least historically, it's usually right. the other way. Right. Well, and the odds are great. It's 
the male with the big ego, and we know that from studies. Uh, so let's get the facts first here. We, the evidence is the following. Both men and women are very poor at picking stocks. The stocks that both of them buy go on to underperform after they buy them on average, and the stocks they sell go on to underperform after they sell them. However, even though both are equally poor at picking stocks, women investors actually outperform men investors, and the reason is simple. They tend to trade less, and there's a perfect correlation between overconfidence driven by testosterone factor, I would say, uh, and trading. And men have simply have confidence in skills they don't have. Women know better. So because of their less confidence, they tend to be less active in trading, less active in jumping around trying to time the market or pick stocks, and therefore they have lower costs and they get higher returns. And you actually see that evidence, Jim, when you look at the returns of married men and single men, I bet you can guess which group gets higher returns. I think so. Yeah, it's the it's married men because their egos are tempered by their obviously superior wives. Uh, <laughs> so the answer is, number one, the women should get educated. I've written 11 books on the subject. Some of them are real simple, explaining the evidence on active versus passive. And they, my advice is tell the husband this, or the wife, if it's the husband who's got the problem on the other side. If you want an entertainment account, take, let's take 5% of our money, and you can go pick stocks and have some fun, and maybe you'll do well. That'll be great. And if you do poorly, it won't bankrupt us. On the other hand, we're going to invest the rest of the money in the way that the evidence is overwhelming is the prudent choice, and that's to be a passive investor, have a globally diversified portfolio, have a written plan, and then stay the course. That would be my advice. Well, I, I think that's, that's uh, some very good advice. To, to be fair, I, I, I do want to point out that uh, the company that you are involved with, BAM, um, does advocate uh, passive index-type investing. Um, so, so you are actually doing what you actually uh, profess. And I should also point out that um, I work with a number of money managers, um, but one of them, in fact, that's probably... One one that I know that BAM works with quite a bit is dimensional funds, which is let's call it the uh, um, the passive index approach designed by numerous Nobel Prize winners. So we we are actually doing what what you're talking about in terms of um, giving clients an option for passive index investing. Yeah. Well, exactly, well, Jim. And I would add one other thing. This is uh, something a mistake people make when they choose an investment advisor. If the advisor is, is not willing to show you their financial statement, their brokerage account or custodial account, and show you that they're investing in exactly the same vehicles that they're recommending to you, obviously it'll be in different asset allocation or proportions because they have different risk tolerances and ability to take risk and even maybe a different need to take risk, but they should be in the same vehicles. If they're not, uh, to me, you can't trust them and shouldn't, and you should run pretty quickly. Well, I, I, I think that's good advice also. Um, and, and, and by the way, you, 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 throughout the book, you quoted one of my favorite authors, who's Jonathan Clemens, who has been on, been on the radio show several times. But uh, in terms of the question, do you let your ego dominate the decision-making process, Jonathan says, when it comes to investing, 
were a bunch of bunch of irrational, inconsistent, neurotic wimps, which I just thought was <laughs> a pretty powerful quote. Yeah, here's the last point I'll make on this ego issue. If you choose active investing and, it do, and the manager you chose failed, uh, you chose a mutual fund that's actively managed and it underperforms and you fire him, you get to blame the manager, of course. They take the blame. However, if they outperform, you take the credit for your genius in the analysis to choose them. On the other hand, uh, if you choose passive investing index fund, there's no one to blame but yourself. So the ego much prefers a game where it can win, you choose correctly, and, but you, can, you can't lose because you blame somebody else. It doesn't like the, the other game where it's either I win or lose. So I think active investing also feeds the ego from that perspective. Another thing that I want to mention, um, and we actually talked a couple weeks ago with Dan Goldie, and we discussed the same issue, so I'd be kind of curious about your answer to it. Mm -hmm. Do you let the price paid affect your decision to continue to hold or sell an asset that you already have? There's a, one, it's also related, uh, this is called the endowment effect, the price you paid for something, but it's also related to a mistake called playing with the house money. So I think uh, I'll tell a short story about a friend of mine, very smart guy, uh, who I worked for at one point. He had bought some Cisco at, I think it was $8 a share or $10, and this was now 1999, and it was trading at something like 80 and we were playing tennis, and I asked him in between sets, uh, you know, why don't you sell some? He said, what could go wrong? I only paid eight for it. Okay, and I said, well, you know, obviously the price could go down and you're making the mistake like the people who sit at the crap tables in Las Vegas and are ahead. Well, then they tend to be more risk-taking because they're playing with the house's money. Okay, so that's a mistake. But the, in this case, what I see, and you probably see this a lot, Say you inherited, uh, the wife inherits some stock or retains it from their husband or the grandfather leaves stock. They own it from Pfizer from 50 years ago and grandpa held it. I can't sell the stock because grandpa wouldn't like that. The only right answer to the question, should you hold the stock, uh, is has nothing to do with the price you paid for it, is you ask yourself if instead of that amount of stock, let's say it was $50,000, you should ask yourself this question. If instead I had 50000 in cash, would I take the cash and buy that security? If the answer is no, and it almost certainly is, because there are 11,000 or so stocks around the globe you could buy, then you, know, you should sell it. You shouldn't let the price you paid for it influence you, either because you paid a very low price and now it's way up and you don't want to pay the taxes, I, I, I bet the people who own Lehman Brothers or Bear Stearns and had big gains would have been very happy to pay the taxes and let, instead of watching it get wiped out. On the other hand, we also know people make the other mistake. They paid, say, 20 for a stock, and now it's 10, and they don't want to sell because they'll say, I just want to wait till I get even. Well, that's also dumb, especially in taxable accounts, where you'd be better off selling, taking the loss, and Uncle Sam at least shares your pain. So you should never let the, stock, the price you pay affect your decision, except in one case. If you think you're going to die in the near future and you've got a very low base of stock, you probably don't want to sell it because your family can inherit the, the stock at the, what's called a stepped-up basis. But you might want to take action to hedge the risk in, instead of selling it. 
Well, I, I think that uh, one of the things that I have seen is people put way too much emphasis on that step-up and basis rules. So, yep. so, for example, particularly if they have a concentrated position yep. and there's capital gains associated with it, you know, so I have people in their 60s and 70s who are pretty healthy and say, oh, well, I can't yep. sell my, you know, that stock. I'll have a big capital gain. I'm better off waiting. And I'm thinking, you mean you're going to hang on to a stock for 15 or 20 years because you're afraid of paying a 15% capital gain when the risk of holding an inappropriate investment and a non-diversified investment should far outweigh the tax that you would have to pay or eventually save if you held it that long. I couldn't agree with you more, and that's why I said in my comments, if you're going to hold it in contemplation of, a, in, the ver, in the short term, a step up in basis, and I mean very short term, then you need to hedge the risk, and there are some ways to do that. But you shouldn't keep that concentrated risk, uh, and that's another mistake we talk about in the book. You know, Bear Stearns is a great example. Most people don't know this, but it from the time it went public till shortly before the crisis, it was the single best-performing stock in the period, outperforming even Berkshire Hathaway. And very quickly, it went almost to zero. Clearly, you would have been better off paying the taxes on it. And you and I could both name hundreds of stocks, one some of the greatest companies ever, uh, you know, Intel and Cisco and Microsoft, and we could go on and on. Uh, Kodak is another great example, may go bankrupt, and Polaroid, once part of the Nifty 50. We could go on and on. The, there's only one thing worse than not having to pay taxes, I tell. Uh, sorry, there's only one thing worse than having to pay taxes, and that's not having to pay them. Well, I, I think that's a good point. Um, maybe one more question before we have to break again. And your question is, do you confuse the familiar with the safe? Right. Great question. People do this all the time. Uh, we see this, for example, studies found that the people in the good city of Atlanta own a disproportionate share of Coca-Cola because that's Coke's headquarters. So they tend to think that being they're familiar with it, it's safe. Well, it, obviously, it's no safer to own Coca-Cola if you live in Atlanta or if you live in Pittsburgh. And people in St. Louis overloaded up on Anheuser-Busch. Well, you can get lucky and have a good company, or you could live in Rochester, New York, and own Kodak and watch it go basically to zero. Evidence from studies all over the world is that people make this mistake. So U.S. investors overweight U.S. stocks and tend to have 10% or less international investing when they probably should have 40 or 50%. Japanese investors do exactly the same thing. French investors do the same thing and they lose the benefits of diversification. That's really one of the worst mistakes that people make, and Peter Lynch compounded the problem, telling people to buy what you know. Just because you know something that's going to, it's what only thing it's going to do is cause you to think it's safe when that's not simply not true. Okay, Larry, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we will continue this conversation. The Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks, featuring the expert advice of Pittsburgh-based CPA attorney Jim Lang. More coming up on KQVAM 1410. The Lang Money Hour continues on KQVAM 1410. For all of your financial needs, turn to Lang Financial Group in Squirrel Hill, 412-521-2732. Let's talk more smart money. 
Hello there, and welcome back to the Lang Money Hour. This is Hannah Haytanen Kay, and I'm here with Jim Lang and Larry Swedrow, author of Investment Mistakes Even Smart Investors Make and How to Avoid Them. Larry, another one of your, uh, and, and by the way, all the questions that we are asking, they, they, are, they come directly from your book, Investment, Investment Mistakes Even Smart Investors Make, by Larry Swedro. That's S-W-E-D-R-O-E. By the way, Larry, if somebody wants to buy your book, would you recommend they go to Amazon or to your website or to the BAM website? Where, where, where would Anywhere you they like. You can, you know, whatever is most convenient, you certainly can get it on Amazon and other book uh, sites as well. Um, and you certainly can get it through us uh, as well. So. Okay. And I know that, by the way, that we have a, uh, a following of financial advisors throughout the country listening because we are, we are streaming. And I would say that these are not only a wonderful read for investors, but also for advisors, because frankly, um, I am guilty of making a whole bunch of the mistakes that you are um, warning people not to make. If if you didn't, you wouldn't be a human (laughs) being, Jim, and I've made many of them in my life, uh, simply because I, too, am a human being. I think what, however, differentiates the behavior of smart people and fools is once you learn it's a mistake, and that's why I wrote the book, to help people avoid them, you should stop repeating it, repeating the same mistake over and again and, and thinking you're going to get a different outcome. I mean, that's what Einstein said is the definition of insanity. Yeah, and, and by the way, I should mention to our listeners that you're not really like the kind of everyday money manager, that you're really more of a researcher and an educator. You have a unique, a unique perspective because you don't have that let's say, the constant pressure of having to um, work with clients or to, or to sell or to even get assets under management, that you're really... That's really true. I, my title is Director of Research, and uh, I am actually act as the Director of Research for over 130 firms around the country who use what I like to call the science or evidence-based investing. It's all the advice is based not on our opinions, but on evidence from peer-reviewed academic journals. Well, and I, and I know that you work with both dimensional funds, which I also do, and I and I also believe that you work with some other alternatives also. Yeah. Um, uh, Bridgeway, Vanguard, uh, funds that are passively managed uh, on the equity side of the and on the bond side are the only kind we will use. So again, your your uh, your company is doing what you preach, and you have the luxury, unlike me, frankly. Uh, the way I I educate, frankly, as I as I do it for marketing. So, for example, this Saturday we are having uh, two workshops: one on the best estate plan for married couples that goes from 9:30 to 11:30 on Saturday at the Pittsburgh Golf Club, and another one, a new one, from one to three, which is actually about trusts and controlling from the grave. So, but frankly, I am doing that, and I'm going to give. Out of a two-hour workshop and maybe a 10-minute or 10-15-minute break, I'm going to give all but maybe five minutes of pure education. But, frankly, at the end, there will be a little pitch for my services where you you really don't say, hey, come to BAM. You're just saying, hey, this is the way it is. I'm, I'm paid as the director of research, not of marketing. Um, this is the way it is. So I think Yeah, and I want to congratulate you because I think one of, another mistake, which I don't talk about in the, in the book specifically, is I, I think in, invest, uh, investors should not hire investment advisors because you can have a great investment plan that blows up for reasons that have nothing to do with investing. And that's why you should be congratulated. You're talking about issues 
that have more to do with wealth management, estate planning, taxes, maybe insurance. So, for example, you could have a client plan blows up because maybe their teenage daughter or son gets in a car accident and they don't have an umbrella policy to protect them. Or people even hire good attorneys to write trusts, and then I'm sure you've seen this, they don't get funded properly. Or you don't have the proper amount of life insurance and you die early, the breadwinner dies, and you don't live long enough to save the money, have the capital markets work in your favor. Uh, that's why I believe you should work with what I call a true wealth manager who integrates investment plans into an overall financial plan. Well, that, that actually leads to an issue that you brought up that in the book it, it talks more about the investments, but I think that we can broaden the issue. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, on mistake 56 on your page 177. And what that, what that mistake is is people not having a roadmap. And what I'd like to, you know, in fact, the, the literal uh, question is, do you begin your investment journey without a roadmap? Yeah. And I'd I like find this. Go ahead. And I'd like to talk about that from both the investment standpoint, which you talked about, and then maybe some of the things that you had just mentioned, which is, let's say, an overall plan. Uh, so why don't, we, why don't you maybe start with the investment part, and then I might kick in at the end on the overall plan that might tie in retirement and estate planning and Roth IRA conversions, insurance, et cetera. Exactly. Uh, so the a simple analogy is I ask this question. Uh, I think no rational person uh, would take a trip to a place they've never been without a road map or today you could say without a GPS. At least no woman would. Men, their, their egos sometimes <laughs> prevent them from you know, having directions or even asking people if they get lost. And no one rationally would start a business without investigating, doing a whole business plan, thinking about contingencies, if things don't get, uh, go right or exactly according to the plan. Yet the vast majority of people begin investing without a plan at all. No asset allocation describing how much risk they're going to take and what types of investments, how much they're going to save every year, a rebalancing table that requires them to rebalance on a regular basis, etc. This needs to be written out, what your goals are, what your objectives, what you want to do with your money. Do you want to leave it to charity and to children? and have a plan that incorporates that. I actually wrote a book, The Only Guide You'll Ever Need to the Right Financial Plan, that addresses these issues and then talks about even things like how do you transfer your values, uh, like maybe giving to charity, to your children through a, what I call a family wealth mission statement. So I'll turn it over to you, having already given some examples like failure to have the proper amount of life insurance can lead to an investment plan blowing up. A lot of times I think that these are interrelated issues. So for discussion's sake, um, on the investment side, if somebody has a, let's say, a pension, whether they're a teacher or a government worker or even a corporate pension, and they have a certain amount of money coming in, that certainly changes the investment recommended allocation of the remaining assets. Exactly, because that lowers your need to take risk in the same way Social Security does. So that, for example, a good rule of thumb for someone who's under 65 is you need to have a portfolio that's about 25 times, if you want to be conservative, maybe 30 or 33 times your spending. So if you need $100,000, you should have about $2.5 million portfolio. But if you're going to estimate you're going to get, say, 25000 in Social Security, now you only need 75000 and if you had a 
pension that was coming in as well that was also for 25000 Now your need is only fifty. Obviously, you can hold more bonds because you don't need to generate the high expected returns that stocks can generate, and that allows you to sleep better. You definitely need to incorporate all of these issues and again, that's why you need a wealth manager, not just an investment advisor. Well, and, and, and for example, I, I was with somebody today um, who had a you know multi-million dollar estate, and I asked them how much they spent, and they said, well, about $5,000 a month. And I was thinking, well, that has, and, and, they're, and at the same time, not making any gifts. And sometimes it makes more sense, in my opinion, to kind of step back and say, no matter how I got to where I am, what makes sense going forward? And wh what we do in our office is we call it running the numbers, where we actually make financial projections. Of course, the investment rates can vary significantly. Right. But then we get an idea of where people will be gi given different possibilities. So, for example... That's the only right way to do it. I don't know how you can make decisions unless you do exactly what you described. Yeah. You do the same thing uh, in the same way. Yeah, so, so we ourselves are not money managers, which is why I work with a variety of money managers who actually manage the money. But then we give advice on things like Roth IRA conversions, right. wh which, by the way, is not as mysterious as some people make it. It's, and it is something that you can, you know, in effect, run the numbers. Let's say you do yep. a Roth conversion of 100000 Let's say you do, no, don't, and you run it forward for 40 years, and you see if is the family better off or worse off. Um, exactly. I would say the same thing for gifting. Of course, there's going to be a wide variation in what might happen to the estate tax, but if you clearly don't need it, um, are there some benefits and how much money can be saved for gifting? And uh, Matt, you can save somebody, you know, literally millions of dollars uh, by having them gift if they are not, you know, uh, have gifting and bequeathed intentions for their children or charity. Obviously, that would far exceed any fees you might charge as the advisor. And, and actually, you just mentioned charitable giving. So, for example, let's say that somebody has, I'll, I'll do a real simple example. Somebody has $2 million. They want to leave half million, I'm sorry, they want to leave 50% to their family and 50% to charity. And let's say that half their money is in an IRA and half the money is outside the IRA. What I find is wills and beneficiary designations leaving 50% to charity and 50% to family. Oh but but I, what I would obviously prefer is that we leave the entire IRA to charity yep. and we leave all the, what I would call, after-tax dollars to um, the family. It's exactly what my estate plan is. My kids have been told my IRA is going to go, and my wife's will go to a, fa a family foundation that will be established, and then they will give, be forced to give that money away to charity. So my charitable intentions, uh, my values are being passed down to my children, they, that's obviously a much more tax-efficient way for them to give than if they had to give it themselves and first pay an estate tax before they got the money. And they get the taxable dollars, which ever, you know, uh, which is a much more efficient way to transfer. Yeah, by the way, I, I really like that because you are, um, so you're having them pick the charities, is that right? Exactly. Well, but they're forced to under the rules, as, as you know, but you're listeners may not, you're forced to give a certain percentage each year. That may change with the laws, uh, but you're forced to give. Uh, what's the current law? You're the expert here. So. Well, anyway, I would love to continue this conversation. However... Yeah, Larry, I'm sorry. We're going to have to 
to close it. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us for another Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. And a special thank you to Larry Swedro. He joins our growing list of informative guests through the years, including Jane Bryant Quinn, Ed Slott, Roger Ibbotson, and others. And again, you can find Larry's book, It's Investment Mistakes Even Smart Investors Make, and How to Avoid Them. Uh, Catch us next time on February 1st, when our special guest will be Dan Henderson, president of Cookson Pierce. And as always, you can catch a rebroadcast of this show at 9.05 on Sunday morning, right here on KQV. Thanks for listening to the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. Check out the show archives and listen on demand anytime at retiresecure.com. KQV listeners can receive free tickets to Jim Lang's Pittsburgh area workshops and more. Call the Lang Financial Group at 412-521-2732. That's 412-521-2732. And reserve your seats and meet Jim Lang in person. Again, that's 412-521-2732.